0: Hello, and welcome to the All Creation Podcast. For this winter solstice edition of the journal, we are talking about the sabbatical year tradition, or Shemitah, and how it connects to the climate crisis, sustainability, human action, God's creation, and more. My name is Yaira Robinson, and I will be the host. In today's podcast, we are focusing on what people can do in relation to Shemitah teachings. As presented in the Torah, Shemitah instructs people living in Israel to, every seven years, let the land rest for one year and release any debts. But what does this vision of a sustainable human, land, and wildlife community mean for those of us who are not farmers living in the land of Israel? In response to the inspiration and challenge of Shemitah practice, what might we do? Today, I am excited to welcome two guest speakers who are each doing something with Shemitah-related concepts. First, we have Naomi Edelson, Senior Director of Wildlife Partnerships for the National Wildlife Federation. She will speak with us about Sacred Grounds, a National Wildlife Federation program that recognizes congregations, houses of worship, and faith communities who create wildlife habitat and actively link faith practices and caring for the environment. Then we'll welcome Mirala Goldsmith, leader of Jewish Earth Alliance, a national network raising a moral voice on climate change to the U.S. Congress. She will speak with us about a local advocacy initiative currently underway in the D.C. area and how it connects to Shemitah. With that, let's welcome Naomi Edelson, Senior Director of Wildlife Partnerships for the National Wildlife Federation. Hi, Naomi. How are you today?
1: I'm good. I'm very good. Nice to join you. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you for being here. So the Sacred Grounds program offered by the National Wildlife Federation, I was reading up about it online, it sounds like the perfect thing for people who participate in organized religious communities and who also care about the natural world, sustainability, and climate change. I would love for you to tell us all about it.
1: Okay, wonderful. Well, Sacred Grounds, has uh, been around for about 10 years. And our goal is to help people and wildlife by helping congregations green the outside of their grounds. There's been lots of work done on helping make the inside of congregations more green through energy efficiency, but our effort is focused on the larger space. What is outside your door and how can we make that more hospitable for both wildlife and actually people. Everything that we do for wildlife in this program helps people. And we know in an era of climate change, that's a desperate need to do that for all of us. The Sacred Grounds program is focused specifically on helping care, so-called care for creation, helping turn lawns, which are typically what are on congregation grounds into more life-sustaining landscapes. We're encouraging the replacement of lawns with native plants, like asters, goldenrods, dogwood trees. It depends on where you live. We have a tool that'll help tell you which are the best plants. But the idea is to replace them with these plants that have co-evolved with wildlife. And when you plant them, they provide food and cover and homes for wildlife, but at the same time, they help people because they're actually changing how the water is on the land and how, in some cases in an era of climate change, we have too little water, we have drought and fire, and in some cases we have too much water like where I live near Washington, DC. And by putting in native plants, they change the soil and the roots go down much deeper And in my case, they slow the flow of the flooding water and they trap the pollutants. So by replacing your lawn, your congregation ground lawn, you will actually be slowing the flow of water and helping our creeks and local waterways have cleaner water. And that's a very important thing for people in an era of climate change. We uh, have a program that's very simple. And the basic concept is to green some of your grounds, and it can be a very small area. Engage your congregation members in doing this through sermons at your congregation or through getting your members to do this at home. And I can tell you a little bit more about that. We're working now with 12 very uh, multi-faith, diverse congregations in the Washington, D.C. area to having their members do this at home, to pledge to plant native plants. And then also reaching beyond your congregation and being leaders within the communities and getting your neighbors and other congregations and other institutions in your community to also do this. We're really working to create a movement with the congregations being at the center of it. So the idea is that we basically want to create, even in urban and suburban areas, biologically important areas, that our wildlife is in so much trouble and people think that the, where wildlife live are only in national parks or federal or state parks or local areas. But in reality, where we live, work, play, learn, and worship is a critical part of providing this habitat for wildlife. Something like the monarch butterfly, which most people have heard is in dire, dire trouble, has crashed by 90% in a very short period of time. And even a beautiful bird, many people may not be as aware of everywhere you live, but pinion jays have lost 50% of their population over the last couple of decades. So we're seeing not just the very rare wildlife species really decline and become a danger, but even once very abundant and common species really lose numbers. And like the comment, the meadow lark is another example. And it turns out that by even just removing a portion of your lawn and putting in these native plants, you create habitat for some of these species like a monarch butterfly. So replacing the lawn and putting in milkweed, which really should be called monarch plant, not milkweed. And uh, by just doing that, you are creating a home for monarch butterflies that that are traveling all the way to mexico every year from canada and us to mexico we can really help this population and in fact the latest numbers from this winter are showing that in some areas they are doing better and there's been a huge effort to put in more milkweed all over north america so it's really maybe beginning to be part of helping and so that's the idea that we don't have to just do it on our public lands that we have to help by doing it where we live, work, play, learn, and worship. We can make a huge difference by all of us together putting in these native plants. What's really critical is that some many butterflies and moths, the, the caterpillar stage, they can only live on certain native plants. That when we have a plant, uh, an herbaceous plant, or a tree. That those actually aren't the ones that that caterpillar can live on. They caterpillar like where I am again, in many parts of the United States, they need oak trees as one of the most important trees. And an oak tree can be host for up to 500 kinds of caterpillars. But you have something like the ginkgo, which people love because they're very pretty and they're, you, you know, but they're not from this region and they will be host to one caterpillar, one, instead of 500. So if we want to really contribute towards saving our wildlife and really saving us, because saving wildlife saves us, then we need to put in things like oak trees or asters and goldenrods. Asters and goldenrods also are very important for caterpillars. They're their primary host plant, which means they feed on them when they're young. And when they're in the caterpillars, and they really need those plants and they're what I call the super plants. And Dr. Doug Tallamy from the University of Delaware has done amazing research and is really an ambassador for all of us on putting in native plants has shown that certain native plants are even more uh, valuable than others. So we encourage the planting of these super plants because they really provide the most habitat for the caterpillars, which will turn into the butterflies and moths. But the other reason the caterpillars are so important, not just because they turn into these beautiful species that we enjoy, the other reason they're so important is that they are the primary protein for our birds. So if we want our birds in our treetops and in our yards, we need to create the food web. We need to help support the food web And something like a chickadee needs, it's unbelievable, up to 9,000 caterpillars in a three week period to feed its babies. Can you believe that? 9,000 caterpillars. So we need to make sure the plants are there that these caterpillars need to live on so the birds can go and find those caterpillars and feed them to their young so we can enjoy them. It's a simple food web story that most of us learn going to school, and we in our own yards at home and at our congregation grounds can help support that and really make sure our our landscapes are life-sustaining. And we uh, are really are part of a movement where people are doing that. And it's very exciting and it's very fun. And I really encourage congregations to do it. Right now, I'm working in the Washington, D.C. region with 12 congregations with uh, two mosques, I'm working with a synagogue. I'm working with several Black-led African-American Methodist and Baptist churches, and I'm working with other Christian congregations. And together, we are encouraging all the members to plant native plants at home. And last year when we did it, we got more than 400 people to come, and we hosted a native plant pickup day around Mother's Day as part of caring for Mother Earth. And we got it was tremendous. It was one of the congregation's ideas. They already gave out regular plants, flowers, you know, for Mother's Day. And they decided to change it to these native plants. And we gave them little seedlings. And they had, you know, all these people, families come and pick up the native plants. It was like a little starter kit to plant them at home. And it was a very easy thing to do. but The congregation's green teams loved it. They really engaged their members. A lot of people love gardening. During the pandemic, gardening has taken off by huge numbers, and it gave people a way really to plant with purpose. And so, not just to plant something that's beautiful, but to plant something that really matters for people and wildlife. So it was a very very fun project and. Now the new congregations are gonna be doing it also and we're changed it to call it planting hope because it really is about providing hope for a future in an era of climate change where so much is hard hard is going on, but by investing in these simple native plants we can really change how our lands support people and wildlife.
0: Well, I, Love this, and I'm so excited about it. So you work in the DC area and with these 12 congregations, but this is a nationwide program. Other congregations and other places can get involved.
1: Yes, we are. We have a strong program in the Great Lakes region, working at Detroit, Toledo, and other places in that area. We also are working in Baltimore and Philadelphia, and now Delaware, and we are starting a program in the Texas area. We uh, have interest in other places. We have it, there's really two ways. We have a website. It's uh, NWF for National Wildlife Federation, nwf.org sacred sacredgrounds, and any congregation can become a sacred grounds. You don't need us to work intensively with you, but in those regions, we have additional funding to really get in there, dig in, so to speak, and really work closely with the congregations and help them create their own action plans and do projects like this Planting Hope Native Plant Giveaway. But any congregation anywhere in the world or you know, the United States can easily do their own program, we offer a lot of examples and information. It's very simple. And then you get designated as a sacred ground.
0: So I, I'm also just enchanted by the work that this program is doing especially connecting, you know, the congregational grounds, but then also involving people in their own homes and backyards and their land and really the community taking action together. I mean, part of the, you know, the Shemitah cycle and the Shemitah vision is A, the whole community is is doing this at the same time. You know, everyone kind of plants and works the, the land, you know, for six years, all concurrent. And then during the shemitah year, everyone let, lets the land rest at the same time. Fences come down. Everyone has access to the food that's grown. Um, so, including you know not just all the people, but also all the wildlife. And so, this idea of then making um, you know congregational grounds, our our backyards and our front yards, into it's kind of like a you know I mean if you really put this into action then sort of like Shemitah for the wildlife all the time, which maybe is what we need in this current era where so much you know, land is being paved over, um, as you said. So uh, I, I love this, this vision of, of the community action, both congregational and also you know, people in the congregation. And that's such a compelling and fun way to get everyone involved in a community project. So I have been around and working with congregations for a while now, um, and I know that change-making in any kind of community can be challenging and difficult sometimes. So I am curious, in in working with congregations and faith communities, I can see how this would be exciting and some people would get really on board and wanting to bring this change to their community, but... You know, are there some common stumbling blocks that you see? What are those, you know, things that might delay or block action in a community? Um, and then, of course, if you've got suggestions for workarounds, then uh, then please share those with us as well.
1: The most essential ingredient, which uh, is the most time intensive, is really great getting a green team going. Relying on volunteers. I co-lead a green team at my own congregation, Adat Shalom Reconstructionist congregation. So I know what it's like. You have a day job, you have kids, you know, and then you have your volunteer work. So it's like on top of everything else that can be tricky. But it is an essential part of it is having a green team and trying to get enough people to join you so that a burden doesn't land on just one person to take care of things and of course, getting your board of directors or your leadership of your congregation. And sometimes I know, like with a Catholic Church, you have to go, you can have to go very high up to get that support. But we have found that there's a lot of interest. And like you said, it's a community building. And in fact, when you explain the project to people, they want to often join because it is a positive, fun thing to do and multi-generational. When we planted um, on our grounds at Adat Shalom, we planted a very big area, which I'll tell you about it in a second, which was sort of a mistake. Big area, but we got sixty families to show up there, and it was the kids who talked their parents into it. One of the volunteers went to every Torah school, every Torah class, class, and talked about how wildlife need these plant, native plants. And all the kids went to their parents and said we got to go to this planting day and they showed up and helped plant 2500 native plants in one area and so it was really fun and really exciting and really great multi-generational project so it really can stimulate a green team which is what we're seeing a lot of congregations find but of course there's the issue of sustaining it over time so people like to do the planting but they don't always want to take care of it after the <laughs> after it's been planted. And the weeding is a big job, but it has to, if it's done right and it may take a few years, um, then you will hopefully crowd out any potential invasive plants. And the native plants should do better than the non-native, and they need less water, they don't need fertilizer. And so talking about a Shemitah year is actually very good because they don't need that intensive gardening once you give it a couple of years to be established. So it's actually less impactful, cost less, but you do need to have follow through after the planting. And we do provide some ideas, but you need a a green team to be committed to helping do that. And you also, the other stumbling block we ran into at our synagogue was that. We did all this great planting and we did work on weeding. We had people help us, but we had a landscaper, you know, help with our grounds. And one day the person who had been trained to take care of this was sick. And so another person came and they cut, (laughs) it was terrible. They cut all the plants down. And they thought there were weeds. And so you have to work. If you have a landscaping company, you have to work with them and be sure they understand it. And in fact, we even ended up putting up a fence to mark demarc- demarcated so that people it was no not to the plants came back. But then we had another problem. So it just takes it's not common yet for people to have native plant gardens. So it work- takes working with your members, working with your landscaping landscapers and working with your board of directors to make sure that after you plant, the area will keep being maintained over the first few years. But so the real thing is to start small. You can start with, you know, 30 by 30 or even 10 by 10. 10 by 10 is fine. Start with 10 feet by 10 feet and expand over time. I mean, you can and you could do this anywhere. If your ground, if you don't have, you're in a very urban area and you don't have a lawn, you can put in a container garden and that will still, that will very much help wildlife. And so, and even slow the flow of the water too. So it actually will help to absorb the water and the pollution. So I think those are the main stumbling blocks. There's getting a green team going and keeping people interested in getting them involved and sustaining the garden after it's planted. And I would say the third thing is sometimes the finances. I mean, native plants initially do cost some money. You could put in something that they call plugs, which are like seedlings, which are very tiny. You don't have to even put in quarts or gallons. You can start very small and let it grow over short time. It really is effective and much cheaper. So you could do something for even a few hundred dollars to start, but it will take some money. And it will take something you'll have to take out the existing lawn and if somebody has a rototiller or is willing to use shovels again starting small can work better. And, uh, but the luckily what's beginning to happen is some local municipalities governments are offering incentives for this like in my region again because of an era of climate change where we have so much precipitation, so much more and more intensity that is causing real stormwater runoff problems. My county I live in, Montgomery County, Maryland, offers congregations up to $20,000 to put in features that will slow the flow. So that's a huge incentive. And they also offer up to $7,000 for homes to put in native plant gardens. It's really quite amazing. So we're hoping that more and more communities will start offering this through their municipality. So there's even more financial incentives, but those are, you know, that can be an issue for some congregations.
0: That's great and very helpful. And in some ways it sounds like any other congregational project that you want to embark on you know you've got to line up the people who are going to support you you've got to do the education you've got to talk to the decision makers figure out the funding that's important um and sometimes you know sometimes i've i've worked directly with people who you know get all excited and really want to take on a project they want it to happen right away and it's like let's take a step back this might be a little bit of a slow process but if you do it right then you can affect real change and make a real Difference. It sometimes just takes a little while. Um, And that's so fascinating what you're talking about, these incentives at the local level. So our next speaker, Marella Goldsmith, is going to talk to us about advocacy. So that'll that'll be an interesting, you know, maybe in some areas people want to start reaching out to their local officials and say, how about this? You know, we're starting to see more flooding. What if we had some local incentives to get people on the ground to make some changes in their backyards and at their congregations, that would be pretty great for everyone. So we'll have to ask her about that.
1: That's <laughs> right. I, I think that is something, in fact, something National Wildlife Federation would like to do is start giving, uh, I'm one of the things I hope to be doing over this next year is giving talks to other groups of municipalities about what are some of the best examples in the country of this and encouraging that to happen. And I think from the grassroots, having people go to their town government and ask them for that and show them some examples would be a great idea. There's a huge problem with stormwater runoff and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And so I do think that this is something that's going to happen more and more. I did want to say, actually, another potential problem which relates to advocacy is that a lot of local governments also have what they call ordinances around what yards should look like. And sometimes people plant these beautiful asters and goldenrods and milkweeds like myself in my yard, and they can, because uh, some towns have rules around height of herbaceous plants, and they will come and tell homeowners or homes, you don't have to own the home, you know, a home, and say your yard looks too unruly, and you need to cut it, when in fact you're again trying to sustain life, and you're trying to do something really good, but the towns have very outdated ordinances around what a yard should look like, and so National Wildlife Federation has actually created a toolkit to advocate for changing ordinances at local level. So you don't, you can change that. And I, and there are more and more towns are figuring out this is good for them. So they want to do that. And, uh, but that is another potential obstacle.
0: Okay. No, that's great. I'm glad that you mentioned that resource. Um, you know, here in, in Texas, we have a lot of HOAs that serve that right. same function. So that, that could be helpful. Um, so speaking of resources, so you know if people are excited and want to get going on this in their own communities, what advice and suggestions do you have for, for them if they want to learn more and, and if they're ready to jump in and get started, what should they do?
1: There's two. The main resources National Wildlife Federation has are on our website. One is, again, it's National Wildlife Federation, and we use nwf.org slash grounds. We'll take you right to that and you'll learn more there. There's also, we have a really long-standing, decade-long-standing program called Garden for Wildlife, and you can go to nwf.org slash garden for wildlife, and tons and tons and tons of resources about how to do native plant gardening, and one of the best things, there's a native plant finder on our, that site, and you can also go nwf.org Native plant finder, and you can put in your zip code and it will tell you the best native plants trees, shrubs, and uh, grasses, and also flowering, you know, herbaceous plants for your area. Because the real issue is you want to plant local plants. It even has links to native plant nurseries. So, those are the two questions we have what should i plant and how do i find them and so we have a lot of information on the garden for wildlife website and even how to do container gardens we have videos we have tons and tons of information and another really great resource is Dr Doug Tallamy who is the kind of the biggest of ambassadors on native plant gardening and he has several websites and he has written many books and One of them is called Bringing Nature Home, and it's it's really wonderful. And if you ever get a chance to see him talk, I would encourage that. But look up Dr. Doug Tallamy and it'll take you to his website, which has a lot of really tremendous information and he's a great partner for us. Okay, great, thank you. And of course, if people want information, my uh, contact information is edelson N, at nwf.org so it's my last name and my first initial.org to have your congregation be involved we've had such tremendous interest from a diversity of faiths a diversity of races genders we're just finding a really great response to this program and uh while we work intensively in some places because we have grants to do that we can also just have lots of examples to share with you to have you be able to do this on your own at your congregation and of course we're always looking for donations if you'd like to help grow help us grow this program in other places
0: well that felt a little bit like closing thoughts but but yes if you have any closing thoughts for our listeners, things you hope they'll do or or reflect on some more from this
1: conversation. I think the one thing that I uh, maybe didn't say that I think is really important, I mean, we do see this uh, very much is about all religions have a concept of caring for creation. They may or may not use that exact language, but it is that idea that we're part of this beautiful world and we have Uh, responsibility to help it continue and that we're totally interconnected and saving wildlife saves us and we really need that in this time and it's a, a fun way positive very significant way to make a difference in the world and as a jew we call it tikkun olam we're part of repairing the world and it's it is our obligation you know i have a 14 year old son to make sure He has a world that is beautiful and life-sustaining. And uh, the last point is that, you know, most or all religions also talk a lot about caring for neighbors. And this is a way we can do that by planting these native plants and slowing the flow or reducing drought and reducing fire. We are helping our neighbors that might be even a hundred miles away downstream or they might be right next door. And we're not just taking care of our own families and our own congregations, but we're really helping the larger community that we're all dependent upon. And this is a very simple way to care for our neighbors by putting in these native plants. And um, those are two big pieces of, I think, how this program relates to all of the religions that exist. So we all can find those connections. And I think it's a a way to show gratitude to all of us, our, our leaders, our neighbors, our wildlife, our beautiful earth. And I would really welcome all of you to join us in doing this.
0: Oh, beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for sharing this work with us. Um, I, I appreciate you and, uh, and thank you for being here.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Let's turn now to Dr. Mirala Goldsmith, an environmental psychologist and co-chair of Jewish Earth Alliance, a national network raising a moral voice on climate change to the US Congress. Hi, Mirala, how are you today?
2: Hi, I'm doing great. I had a great morning. Can I tell you about it? Yes, please. So this morning, I participated in an online legislative breakfast with our two senators here in Maryland. It was hosted by the Jewish Community Relations Council. And as soon as they said, uh, please put your questions in the chat, I put my question in the chat, asking our senators about what's on their agenda for climate action following the Build Back Better bill. And I was very excited because the moderator asked my question and the two senators both responded.
0: That's great. Did you get the answers you were hoping for?
2: Well, they're both pretty supportive, but I think it's really important for them to hear that citizens and especially uh, people involved in the Jewish community, people of faith are actually concerned about climate change.
0: Well, that's a good point. So you know what, before we talk about the Jewish Earth Alliance, or the local advocacy project on which you're currently working, can you dispel some common myths for us about what is and isn't allowed regarding advocacy and religious groups? So can people of faith, religious leaders, and congregations participate in advocacy?
2: Can they gasp, lobby? That's a great question. Let's start first with congregations. Congregations are tax-exempt organizations, and that's why there are some limitations on what they can do. But the answer to your question is yes, congregations can lobby on legislative issues and policy matters. According to the IRS, they're allowed to engage in lobbying activities as long as they're an insubstantial part of their activities. The only thing that they're not allowed to do is to support political campaigns. So congregations should not be involved in partisan activities like campaigning for a candidate. But lobbying on legislative issues and policy, not only is it allowed, but it is to be encouraged. Okay. Let me just say about the individuals, though. You also asked me about people of faith and, and uh, clergy or, or uh, religious leaders. It is so important for people of faith to be involved in advocacy and lobbying activities. When we raise our voices, not only are we living out our values, but we're also uh, very impactful because very often uh, our legislators are not used to hearing from people of faith on issues related to climate change, the environment, and even other issues that you would think they would be used to hearing from us about so we we like to say that uh, people of faith walk in a different door than the other advocates and may get a little bit more of an attentive hearing because of that. So, first of all, I think we need to do it because of our beliefs, but we also uh, can really make a difference.
0: Well, thank you. A lot of people, you know in religious communities have have asked me that over the years. I know it's a source of a lot of confusion. So, you've just cleared it all up for us. We should be active and involved.
2: Actually, Um, let me add one more thing. If you go to uh, the website of my organization, jewishearthalliance.org, and you scroll down to the resources section, uh, we have a link to a publication of the reform movement called Speaking Truth to Power, which is a guide for congregations being involved in advocacy. And it's all spelled out there, and it was approved, I'm sure, by their lawyers so if you find yourself in the position of having to try, trying to explain this to someone else, print out that page of this guide and hand it to them and that will probably help.
0: Beautiful, thank you. That's a good resource for us to, uh, to know about. So I understand that you are helping to organize advocacy efforts in your religious community around a plan taking shape at your county level. I am excited to hear about this, and not just because I work for my own local county, but really one of the reasons that I work at the local level is because I believe that's where there's a lot of opportunity to really make a difference. The most creative, forward-thinking work on climate mitigation, adaptation, and resilience is happening at the local level here in the states and all around the world. Our previous speaker was just mentioning something about her county, which I think is also your county, Gives incentives for congregations to, you know, plant natural plants on their ground, so that's just one example of a creative forward thinking thing that's happening at the local level. Um, okay, so I'll be quiet now, but please tell us about this thrive plan and how you and your congregation are getting involved.
2: Sure. So I'd like to go back to where you started with the podcast, which was talking about the fact that this is a sabbatical year. So in our congregation and particularly in our climate action team, we were thinking about what would be an appropriate project for us to get involved in that reflects the values of the sabbatical year. The sabbatical year raises some really deep questions about what is a sustainable society. And it challenges us to think about what we do in the present, to invest in a better future. We were excited to find out that, uh, coincidentally, I guess, our county uh, was considering a new general plan. Uh, The general plan, which is called Thrive 2050, uh, is about how the county will grow over the next 30 years. And most uh, specifically, it's about the land use uh, plans for the county. Our current uh, general plan is from 1964. And that plan prioritized cars, which over the years has led to a lot of congestion, people driving a lot, and very high emissions. And it also exacerbated segregation because it took as its starting point um, existing patterns of segregation that were caused by redlining and by restrictive covenants. This new plan, Thrive 2050, encourages different growth patterns, uh, particularly compact, complete communities or what they're calling 15-minute living, so that what everything that people need will be found within 15 minutes of walking or biking distance. So our congregation uh, action team decided we could get involved in this project and help to support the adoption of this really future-oriented plan. We joined a coalition in the area called Montgomery for All, and then we began to think about how could we bring this message to our own congregants. We came up with the idea of scheduling a Thrive Shabbat or Sabbath. We uh, decided to host a number of Sabbath dinners in people's homes, and we trained uh, members of our team to facilitate a discussion about the Thrive plan. That was really successful because it turned out that people really like to go to each other's homes for dinner. Um, And because of the pandemic there were some really cozy dinners outside by the fire pits. Um, But the discussions were really helpful because there's a lot of misinformation actually going around in our county about what's really in this plan. So people were grateful to learn more about it. We were able to correct some of those misperceptions and then encourage uh, the participants to contact their county officials to show their support for the plan. This week, we're actually going to be participating by testifying in uh, some listening sessions that the county is now convening. And we have seven people from our congregation who've signed up to testify. And we know that would never have happened without our educational activities and the Thrive Shabbat.
0: That's amazing. That's really a lot of participation. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's so important for people to get involved. And I think especially at the local level, that's really where you can start to see some of that difference and feel like you're making a real impact, which can be um, elusive sometimes uh, when you're advocating for policies. So kind of along with that, like what advice or suggestions do you have for people who, want to learn more about getting involved, you know, maybe they haven't done any advocacy before, it can seem overwhelming and daunting sometimes, what issue to lobby about or to get involved in and which elected officials to contact, et cetera, et cetera. So how can folks get started?
2: Great question. And it's a simple answer. Don't try to do it alone. Look around uh, for a group that you can be part of in your area. And then don't just sign up for the mailing list. Contact the group and meet with someone there so you can learn more about it and find out what are the different ways for people to be involved. And if they don't have a lot of ways for people to be involved, then that's probably not the group that's really gonna help you. So, you know, move on to the next one. That's the way to do it. And I would just say, be brave. You know, uh, it can seem daunting to get involved in advocacy, but citizen advocacy is really just about showing up, first of all, because we need to show that the political power of the people. Uh, We are uh, confronting political power that is backed by a lot of money, and uh, the only counter force to that is people. So first of all, you're doing a lot if you just show up. And then you're, it's about telling your story and why you care as a citizen. It's not about being an expert. There are plenty of experts out there that can give you the information that you need to understand the issue and to share your point of view. So just be brave and do it. Thank you.
0: I love that, and especially about sharing your story, because we all have unique experiences and a unique kind of position or you know, background in life and... And that can be part of what you share with elected officials is, I'm a teacher, I'm a healthcare worker, I care about this issue because and telling those personal stories um, can really be compelling. So, but well, do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners, things that you hope they'll do or reflect on
2: from this conversation? You know, um, the research, I'm an environmental psychologist, And the research shows that um, one of the most important things that we can do as individuals is just to talk about our concerns, talk about what we care about, especially about climate change. Because people are very overwhelmed by that and don't know what they can do. And if they don't know that other people care and other people are concerned, they feel very much alone. So the first step in advocacy is just opening up a conversation. And I think everyone can do that uh, within especially within their religious community.
0: Oh, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for the work that you are doing in the world and in your community. I wish you and your congregation the best of luck in all of its efforts. And I'm so glad that, that the advocacy efforts are paired with community building and sharing food together, sharing a meal. That's just a beautiful way to be involved. Um, so it was lovely to talk with you today. Thank you so much, Marilla, for being with us.